Very good. Well, Rosh Hashanah is uh, upon us, and it is a, uh, it's always a, a, a time of a marking the year in, uh, you know, for variety, uh, varieties of reasons. Certainly, you know, when we have a birthday, that's a time of uh, marking the, the year. Uh, uh, January 1st is a time of uh, marking the year. And so is uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah. According to the uh, scriptures, uh, in the 23rd chapter of um, uh, Leviticus, it is known as Yom HaTruah, the Feast of Trumpets, or literally, the Feast of Noise, uh, or the, the, feast of loud, the, feast of loud, uh, the Feast of Loud Noise. Uh, and that has been interpreted uh, uh, for us as uh, the Feast of trumpets. Now, not like, uh, you know, the brass section of the band, okay, uh, but of uh, the horn of a kosher animal. And so a ram's horn is used, not because we uh, often eat them, but because of the very famous uh, story that we read on Rosh Hashanah uh, of uh, the Akedah, of the binding of Isaac, of Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain, and a ram was caught in the thicket. And so, we use a ram's horn. Now you know, right? There you go. Uh, now, uh, it's interesting that of all of the holidays that should be included in what we call the high holy days, that Rosh Hashanah should be included because we read almost nothing about it in the Bible. Almost nothing about it, right? You have two or three verses in Leviticus 23, and all it says is a memorial, a day of remembering doesn't tell us about bringing sacrifices and all of that, right? Uh, we, we don't read uh, in the Brit Hadashah. Some say there may be an allusion to it in the fifth chapter of John, but, you know, uh, the text doesn't exactly say that. Uh, so uh, why is it so important? Well, there is a psalm that many believe uh, was sung on this holiday, uh, Psalm 81, and the reason that people hold that view is because of what it says here. In Psalm 81, sing for joy to God our strength, shout joyfully to the God of Jacob, raise a song, strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon, uh, at the full moon on our feast day. So there's the belief that perhaps this was on Rosh Hashanah. But there are other places, and we're not going to talk, turn to them tonight. Um, but in the prophets, I believe, I believe in Ezra, we read about the first day of the seventh month. And we also read, I believe, about it in the prophet Haggai. I may have to apologize for that because I'm just thinking that out loud. But I'm pretty sure we read in those prophets about the first day of the seventh month. What that tells us is, in interestingly enough, uh, in Ezra and in Haggai, what do they have in common? Does anyone know what they have in common? They're both in the Bible. Okay. They both come after the exile. They come after the exile. So one of the things that we learn is, is that when the Jewish people came back from the exile, they basically, that is when Israel became, so to speak, the people of the book. In other words, you read in Ezra about how Ezra taught the law, taught the Torah to the people. And they began to do, do it because this is what it says, not simply because this was 
what uh, you know Moses told us in the wilderness, but because this is what it says in the book. Kind of like when we understand it, you know, oh, this is what it says in the book, and this is what we do. Uh, and so it tells us that there was, in a sense, a revival of the observance of these, of these days after the exile. So that's kind of interesting, because you don't read about them at all in the, the uh, prophets uh, during uh, the period of the first temple. So uh, very interesting. So therefore, uh, we have to ask ourselves, so why is it so important? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we observe this day? Because we're following the lead of the rabbis, that's why. Uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah uh, came to be understood as the uh, beginning of the season of repentance, which uh, is leading up to Yom Kippur, which is leading up to the Day of Atonement. And so uh, you could say in the context of Leviticus chapter 23, uh, in verse 23 and following, uh, that the context of this holiday is you blow the shofar uh, as you prepare for Yom Kippur, as you prepare for the Day of Atonement. And, and that basically is how it's understood, that this is the beginning of the high holy day season. The, the shofar is blown to wake us up so that we would uh, you know, be awakened from our slumber and repent of our sins. And uh, it's believed that God opens up three books on this, uh, on this day. The book of life, the book of death, and, and sort of the book of neither life or death, right? Uh, and uh, the, uh, the belief is, is that for the next 10 days, uh, we make amends uh, for our sins between people. We ask forgiveness and be forgiven. Uh, and... Uh, then uh, may our name be written in the book of life. That's what we say. May our name be written in the book of life. That's part of the greeting on uh, Rosh Hashanah. There is that, uh, you know, that desire. Now, you know, it's kind of interesting, by the way, uh, that uh, these 10 days, these days are called the days of law, and the rabbis teach us that it's not simply about just go in your prayer closet and pray that God would reveal your sins to you and you confess your sins. I mean, that's true, but the emphasis of the 10 days has to do with relationships of people, it has to do with forgiveness and asking forgiveness. And that by the time we come to Yom Kippur, we should make sure that anyone who has anything against us, we go and make right, or if, uh, we've, uh, uh, if someone has sinned against us, that we uh, uh, forgive them. And so isn't it interesting that in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we read uh, the words of uh, Messiah himself. He says um, in verse, uh, we'll start with verse uh, 21 of uh, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way 
in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge of the officer and be thrown into prison. What's fascinating about that, that's, that's pretty much the teaching of the days of awe. That before you come to the day of atonement, if somebody has something against you or, someone, or you have something against someone, you, you, you uh, ask forgiveness and be forgiven. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, and it really, I think, epitomizes... Um, or is really like you might say the tip of the iceberg of um, the uh, the essence of our faith in Messiah that it is part and parcel of the uh, of the Jewish uh, Jewish world uh, and that's what we try to do you know here at Beth Messiah is demonstrate life in Messiah uh, in a uh, Jewish way now so uh, back to uh, Rosh Hashanah. So it is a time for us to look introspectively of our lives, to take stock of our lives. There's lots of different things we could say. Take a spiritual inventory of our lives. Uh, repent and be reconciled to God and to others and, and begin again. In this uh, computer age, we could say, this is when we reboot. Okay, This is when we basically restart right? and get it all right. Uh, and start over again. And isn't it something that, um, uh, you know, in our uh, country here, we have uh, uh, a national day of prayer that some observe, but wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a national day of repentance, right? Or 10 or 11 of them, right? You know, or a month of repentance, right? But that's uh, exactly what God gave to the Jewish people, is a season of repentance. And that is... Uh, what this is. And that's why we build the shofar. That's why we come together. That's why we have a service. That's why we uh, have a particular liturgy for the holiday. Uh, and that is why we do what we do. Uh, like we uh, always say, we don't just uh, come for services. Like, you know, it's time for the service. Let's do the service and then go home. No. On Shabbat, we refer to that as a covenant renewal opportunity. And in a way, that is what this whole High Holy Days period is as one continuous uh, a, a covenant renewal uh, opportunity. Not just to come to the service, but the goal is, is that when we come together and we pray and we sing and we are challenged by the Word of God, that we go home and we think about it and we pray about it. And, and then we come tomorrow and then we go home and we think about it and we, we go uh, down to Creekside and we throw our stones in the, in the creek there, remembering how God said uh, He would cast our sins into the sea. And then the next day, and the next day, and the next day, we dwell on it, and we chew on it, we meditate on it, and then we uh, are prepared for Yom Kippur, and we're fasting, and then we come to the end of the day, and, and we at Beth Messiah, we communally break the fast together. And the very next day, we build the sukkah. Uh, and then a few days later, uh, we uh, begin our celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, where we're celebrating the restoration uh, that God has uh, indeed given to us. This uh, period of time, the celebration of these holidays, observance of these holidays, is in a way a microcosm, a, a small picture of God's entire history, of his, of his work in this world, of, of uh, bringing people to repentance and restoration, and not only people, but the restoration of this entire world. Uh, and that's um, certainly... Uh, nothing to take lightly. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that God has called us to a work that's way bigger than ourselves. So turn with me 
to the passage that we read responsively earlier, but you can open up your Bibles if you'd like, or use that the Machzor on page 35, and we want to turn to Psalm 27. In the first three verses of Psalm 27, we read these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Well, that takes a lot of chutzpah to say something like that. Uh, you, you know, um, uh, after uh, uh, President Obama wrote his book, The Audacity of, uh, of Hope, you had uh, many, uh, many a preacher name their sermon, The Audacity of Faith, okay? And that's pretty good, uh, because really, how can we say, I mean, think about it, these words, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. My heart will not fear. And at the beginning, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Well, I don't know about you, but, you know, there's a lot to fear and dread in this world. You know, it's easy to say, uh, it's easy to stick our head in the sand and say, Woo! You know, I, I, hey, hey, I'm a believer, you, you know, and now shoot me in the head so I can go to heaven, right? Uh, and so I don't have anything to fear. Uh, I, but, but the fact of the matter is, each of us, if we view this simply as me, myself, and I, it's hard to say these words. It is hard to say these words. Now, however, if we recognize that, again, as I said a moment ago, we are part of something larger than ourselves, that it's not just about me and my well-being and my happiness and my joy and the wonderful plan that God has for me in my life. And I recognize that it's more about us and that I, by, through embracing Yeshua, have, so to speak, enlisted. And now I'm part of what God is doing in this world, along with many, many, many other people. You know, think about this. On June 6, 1944, uh, at, the, you know, at the beaches of Normandy, France, uh, at the very beginning of the Normandy invasion, soldiers were being cut down uh, you know, by the hundreds. It was horrible. But the fact of the matter is, we would all say... Uh, unequivocally, that no one died in vain. That they were all part of something larger than themselves. And that at the end of the day, they were part of a victory. And so in the same way, you and I can say these words with confidence because, I don't know if you've read the end of the book, but at the end of the book, we win. Okay? Uh, I hate to ruin it for you, okay? All right? But at the end of the book, we win. We are part of the victory of God. We are part of God turning over this world to a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't mean 
that my life uh, uh, is a microcosm of that in this world. We're living in between the first coming of Messiah and the second coming of Messiah, and all kinds of things can happen to us. You know, it says in the book of Hebrews, for example, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, or I should say the, the orator of Hebrews, was uh, trying to convince people not to turn away from the Lord, right? And so he says at the very end of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, at the end of chapter 10, he says in verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. That comes from uh, the Septuagint version of uh, Habakkuk uh, chapter 2. Okay? And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. They were being persecuted. They were thinking, we might say, this is too hard. What am I doing? Why am I going through all this? Let me just go back to the way it was. Think about uh, the, uh, the life of the, uh, the uh, original apostles of, of the Messiah. They lived difficult lives. They died horrendous deaths. It was no picnic. Marginalized by everyone, misunderstood. The life of Messiah himself certainly uh, was like that. And it's interesting when you think about the life of Yeshua and you think about his death without a theological interpretation of it, he died a very ignoble death. He, I mean, it was tragic. He was, uh, he was crucified. He was an innocent man. He was crucified on trumped-up charges. It's terrible. But we understand from God's point of view, God's understanding of history and the things that take place. And that what may seem like tragedy is part of his doing. If we were there in that day and we were standing uh, at the foot there of uh, Yeshua on, you know, uh, on the tree, my guess is we would not have been saying, okay, this, I get it. I get it. He's dying for our sins. No, we would think, oh, Gavalt, this is like a train wreck. That's what Peter was thinking. It's like, it's a train wreck. Here, we're following him all this time. He's going to be king, and this is going to be great. We're deciding who's going to be on his right hand, who's going to be sitting over here, you know, who's going to be ruling where. And now look, it's a disaster. The whole thing blew up, right? But then they gained the understanding from the Lord. This is what this means. We don't always have that opportunity in every single thing that takes place. And so we read in chapter 10, uh, in chapter 11 of Hebrews at the beginning, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the world were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And then he goes on to talk about famous people in the Bible and how they live by faith. And if you jump down to the end of the chapter, notice he says in verse 39, 
And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Well, that's not fair. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So and then he says, of course, therefore, therefore, because of all that, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so eagerly entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes in Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. The reason that they could die in faith and were not failures and it was not a train wreck is because they were part of something bigger than themselves. They did not see a new heaven and a new earth. They did not see all that had been promised. God promised Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He did not live to see that. Does that mean that God's promise was, uh, was no more? No. Abraham was in the, most, in the most reduced way. A link in the chain of people and events of the new heaven and a new earth, of bringing about a new heaven and a new earth. You and I are part of that. You and I have this tremendous opportunity, this tremendous blessing, this tremendous calling, every single one of us in Yeshua, that we're part of creating a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we look at the world around us, and we say, the world is going to hell in a handbasket today. And like I've said recently, I don't mean today like in the 21st century. I mean like right now. Okay? Think about what's happening today. You have the strangest of conglomerations of groups of nations and peoples. Last week we hated them. This week we're fighting with them. What, you know, and of course, we're all aware of the horrific, um, uh, you know, terrorist uh, uh, ISIS group there. And, and then, of course, we know what's going on in Israel and, and in our own country. And, uh, and it's kind of scary, isn't it? Because just before I came, I was watching the news. And what are they saying? They're saying, well, now that we're, now that we're in Syria and now that... Uh, uh, you know, we're dropping bombs on these people. Anything could happen anywhere. Here, anywhere, right? Uh, and so, we certainly do live in a scary world if it was all about us. Yes, it is scary. But it's not all about us. It's about us participating in the grand, victorious uh, uh, work uh, of God. And so, therefore, we can say with confidence... I will not fear, as Paul said in prison, to live as Messiah and to die as gain. You know, uh, that is no different than love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. It's kind of like saying the same thing in, in other words. And, and so that is why David could say, whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I dread? In other words, he understood himself as part of this covenant relationship with God uh, that ultimately uh, is victorious. Ultimately is victorious. So confidence comes by being part of uh, God's, uh, God's work in this world. And that comes by trusting uh, Yeshua, by trusting in the one who delivers and gets the victory. 
right? Now, in Matthew, in the Brit Hadashah, in the 13th chapter, Yeshua kind of says this, kind of explains this when he talks about the mystery of the kingdom. Because he was trying to explain that, yes, he is indeed the king, and there is this kingdom, uh, but at least for now, it's invisible and is running concurrent with the, this world. Okay? Uh, and when you look around you, you might not see this great magnanimous victory. And he goes on to explain how this kingdom can be rejected. The parable of the soils, you know? This, this kingdom will be accepted by some, rejected by others. What? How could that be? But then if you scroll down, we might say, uh, all the way down to toward the end of the chapter, and uh, here, in verse 31, he presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest uh, and nest in its uh, branches. Now, we can skip down even a little farther, and uh, we can read in verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and, and bought it. Well, we can stop there. And so it may not look like much. It's kind of like part of what Yeshua is saying. It might not look like much to the naked eye, but it's the most important thing there is. It's of tremendous value and of tremendous meaning. And although not only is it of tremendous value, but even though it may be small, the day will come when it will be huge. And so, you see, we should be encouraged. And when we look at the world around us, we need to be able to say, you know, I don't know exactly what God is doing, but I know he's doing something. How do we know that? We know that because we have a testimony from this book. This book is, in a sense, in a sense, a history book, but not a history book uh, simply writing a, a basically a history of Israel or, or a history of the New Covenant. It is history from God's point of view, from God's point of view. That's why lots of things are left out in this history, and, and, and some things are accentuated and other things are minimized, because God is trying to make a point that he is sovereign, he's over all, and that he's providential, that he works in the, the workings of individuals and in this world. And so, based on what we understand about God from his word, we understand that God is at work, and that we, we have the most important job of all, that we are called to turn the world upside down. We are called to be game changers in this world. We are called to, to change the culture. We are called to invite people into God's work, into this kingdom, into this community, this uh, overall community of Messiah followers. 
and be part of this community and be part of this alternative lifestyle and be part of this alternative worldview. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Embrace the Messiah. That is what we're called to be and we're called to do. Why did Yeshua say, go and make disciples of all the nations? Not just so individual people could be saved and go to heaven when they die, so that they could be part of this movement, of this Messiah movement that Yeshua inaugurated. Part of this Jewish movement of new life, of abundant life, of the beginning of the end. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, in the first chapter, in the uh, New Covenant, he says, at the very beginning, in the third verse, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah, just as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Messiah Yeshua, to himself according to the kind intention of his will, uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, you know, you can't stop, which he lavished upon us uh, in all wisdom and insight. But I'm going to stop there. Uh, and so we see that he has bestowed upon us these promises, these blessings, but we know from other places in the text, from the book of Romans, in the Brichad Hashah, in the 8th chapter, that we don't have it all yet, that the entire uh, world to come has not been unveiled, that, and we know that from our own world. We still have death, and we still have suffering, and wars, and, and uh, all kinds of uh, you know, horrific uh, things that take place in individuals' lives, and massacres, and, and terrible things. We still have all of that. But yet God has allowed us to like pull back the curtain and participate when we embrace him. Of course, we have to embrace him. We have to enter into that covenant relationship. When I say enter into it, that means we have to participate in that covenant relationship, right? As we embrace Messiah uh, and, our, and have the Ruach HaKodesh and, and, and are empowered to live, uh, uh, to live uh, unto him. So then we can say... In spite of this, I shall be confident when we have that kind of worldview. Imagine the difference that makes when people that you communicate with, your neighbor or the people you work with, see that you have that, that sense about you, not some cockiness, uh, you know, I'm confident, um, but a trust in God and, and uh, not allowing circumstances to, to dictate uh, your, uh, you know, the well-being of your, of your life. And this is true whether we're talking about grand events on the world stage or on your street or in your house. We can say like him, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? My hope is in the Lord because he indeed is victorious and I am part of it. Now, we see here, not only is he confident, but we see that he has also, uh, the right uh, priority. He says, the one thing I ask, in verse 4, one thing I ask. Okay, I'm sure that's uh, a, a, a little uh, hyperbole there. I'm sure he's asked other things. But this one thing I have asked from the Lord, 
that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me on, up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So we see that he uh, had a particular goal. He had the right priority. Seeking God. Not just seeking uh, to save his skin. Right? Not, uh, you know, digging a hole somewhere out in the country and making sure he has enough supplies so that when the bad day comes, then that, that's what I need to do. Now, maybe that is a good thing to do. But it certainly isn't his priority here. His priority is uh, relating to God. We might ask ourselves, what does he mean by this? That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Certainly, on one level, it means uh, uh, to be uh, in the presence of God. I desire to be in the presence of God. More and more of God. This morning, in our men's Chavura uh, group, we were talking a little bit about this, and I, and I said to everyone, uh, you know, um, remember there used to be, a, uh, just a few years ago, uh, these, a series of advertisements, uh, I think for, I think it's for uh, uh, phone service. And you had this uh, man sitting uh, at a table with all these little kids, right? And he would ask them a question, and, and, and they would uh, respond in real cute ways and so on. And so uh, in one of them, uh, he asked something to the effect of, is, is more better than less? Right? And so they went around the table and every kid answered with the word more. You're like, more, more is more, more. You know, more, more. You know? Well, yes, more is better. And that's what he said. I want more. I want more of you, God. More. I want to be in your presence wherever I am because if I'm in your presence, I am protected. Wherever that may be. I am protected. I want more of you. And so, this is a key. The more we desire God and seek Him out more, the more we will see ourselves as being protected and see ourselves as part of this work that God is indeed doing. That's why in the Brit Hadashah, we have all those one another passages and Almost everything in the Torah is about relating to other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. That we are called to be part of one another. We are members one of another, as it says in Romans uh, uh, chapter uh, uh, 12. We are part of what God is doing. And the more that we experience God's presence, the more confident we are. And may I suggest that God made us physical beings to relate to him in a physical way. What I mean by that is, sometimes you get the idea, uh, some, sometimes by the way people teach the Bible, that physical is bad. Physical is bad. Physical versus spiritual. 
Okay? No. Physical is good in the Bible. What we have is invisible versus visible. Visible, invisible. Okay? Uh, but what is physical is good. God made this world and called it good and very good. Okay? And the way we relate, because of our constitution as humans, we relate physically. May I suggest that is why God gave Israel rituals. They're physical rituals. Have a mezuzah on your door. Wear fringes. Uh, bring animal sacrifices. Uh, things you do, places you go, that we relate to God very physically. And so on one, on one level, relating to one another is a very physical thing as believers. When we relate to one another physically, we experience more of the presence of God. That's why God does not call us to be lone rangers. That's why we have trouble when we just, we're out there and we show up once in a while. But when we are intricately involved, we experience God in a greater way because we're experiencing God via one another. Okay? Then may I suggest also that uh, in very tactile ways we experience God. For example, many people, not everybody, but a lot of people like to read a certain Bible. Like, you know, the Bible you've had for a long time. Uh, and you know, you know, maybe you've taken some notes and you know where everything on, is on the page. And somehow when you read that Bible, you just feel closer to God. That's a good thing. That, that, that's, that's how we're, that, that's supposed to happen. Because we're human. We relate to God in very physical ways. Okay? Uh, I think that when... Uh, he here talks about a temple and the house of the Lord and a hiding place, a tabernacle here, uh, uh, that he is not only using them as pictures of his personal relationship with God, but that he really believes that being in a particular location gives him a sense of security. And he can behold the pleasantness of God by being in a certain place whether that's just by himself out in a field or in a particular place, like uh, the uh, temple. I've been reading up a lot lately on things like um, uh, having, a, you know, viewing architecture from the worldview of a believer. How do you like that? Do you ever think of that stuff? Oof. What am I doing at three o'clock in the morning? Anyway, uh, the idea is, is that when we build structures or, or even communities or cities or you know, in uh, looking at a worldview of a new heaven and a new earth, they need to be built and made in such a way that it is conducive for us to live a godly life. And that's a whole other story. But when we think about places like a sanctuary, it's no joke to think that that's why it's called a sanctuary, that there is a representation that when you come in, you feel a sense of closeness to God. You're suppo it's supposed to happen that way. That's the, pr the purpose of the room is not only to have a good acoustics and a heating system and lights and to keep us from the rain, but it's supposed to represent this uh, protection of God, this relating to God, whether we're referring to grandeur of God or his intimacy. And the way a whole, a whole building or, or an area should be structured uh, it should lend itself to all of that. Being close to God. Being close to God. And so if we're going to have that kind of confidence, 
we need to have a place. I asked that to our men this morning. Uh, you know, uh, do you have a place that you feel close to God? And everybody thought about it and said, yeah, I guess I, I kind of do. You know, if I'm in a particular room in my house or, uh, you know, or at a particular time of day, I, I pray. These are our structures. And by the way, do you know what else is a structure like that, uh, a physical structure? It's something that we do every time we have a service. We've already done it tonight. And that is our liturgy. Our liturgy is like a, is like a structure. It's very physical, our liturgy. In other words, we read it, we know it, we say it all the time. And you know what that's like? That's like, uh, you know, I said to our men this morning, what does an old church basement in Yankee, an old Yankee stadium have in common? Poles, right? They're held up by poles, right? You got to have those poles. Well, in the same way, one might say our liturgy and form of worship is like those poles. It's like they hold up the structure. They help us to see that there are boundaries and a structure and give us a particular identity. See, we worship in a very physical way. We do not just sit there and go, go and that now God, okay, wait, I'm having a metaphysical experience with God. And that's it. I'm trying to get out of my body. I'm trying to get out of my body. You know, that's, sometimes I think that's what we're trying to do. But no, uh, we're called to be very physical. And so his desire was to be known by God, to seek God and be found by God. And you know, a wonderful thing about God is, is that he doesn't play hide and go seek the way we do. He doesn't hide like he's trying to hide, right? And we're trying to find him and we can't find him, you know? No, no. The, we, we play it in reverse. We're the ones who hide because of our sins, because of those encumbrances that keep us from focusing on the author and finisher of our faith, right? And so that's why on Rosh Hashanah, we need to repent of our sins. That's why on Rosh Hashanah, we need to think introspectively. And we need to come back to this one thing I ask from you, God, that I might seek your face and know you and be in that hiding place with you. See? Then we can have confidence we can have confidence in knowing that God has called us and that we're serving him and that he's leading us and he's guiding us. And we invite people to repent of their sins and come in the door and, and participate and have that worldview. Ah, there is so much more to say, but we're actually going to continue tomorrow morning uh, uh, with these thoughts. And we're going to uh, ask ourselves, uh, so what do we do? So what do we do? Well, I'll just say it right now very quickly. We need to repent of our sins, right? If we even, first, I guess we need to know that we've embraced Yeshua. If we have never embraced Yeshua, we're standing outside of the door. Not that we're not welcoming. We're welcoming. We, we want everybody to come. But unless you embrace the Messiah who takes away our sins, we, we cannot be accepted in the beloved because of our sins. And so, this sense of meaning and purpose and victory comes when we embrace Yeshua and we confess our sins and we repent uh, of our sins and he gives us his very life and righteousness. We enter his kingdom, so to speak. Okay? Okay? Uh, then we need to consecrate ourselves. We need to be holy people. We need to remove the sin in our lives. We need to start over with God. We need to confess our sins we need to be single-minded. This one thing I asked 
in our wholehearted devotion to, uh, to the Lord. Find that place. Find that spot of holiness and godliness. And of course, study the word. He's going to say farther down, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. And share this message of hope. The very end of Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord. It's like a message to others. Wait for the Lord. Be strong in your heart. Take courage. Yes, indeed, wait uh, for uh, the Lord. And you know, as a community here at Beth Messiah, we ourselves have been uh, talking about how can we do this as a, uh, how can we do this as a community? And, uh, you know, we have really been uh, praying about this. Uh, and as, you know, we're entering our 40th year uh, uh, here at Beth Messiah, we have this marvelous opportunity to expand our ability to, to equip our people, to equip us all in learning the, the Word of God. Uh, and uh, we're, we're hoping, actually, even to, to bring someone on to expand our discipleship training, uh, our creating materials, uh, uh, creating more opportunities to share the good news of Messiah. And also, uh, we're uh, in, the, in the works of talking about doing some expansion and renovation to our building so that it really is this place that truly is not a, not a good place, but just the place that God has called us to be to reflect his glory and the, and, uh, uh, the, the messianic message of Yeshua uh, that we have. And so it all begins, though, with removing those things that get in the way. It all begins with prayer, as we've said last week in our message, and with repentance and waking up and recognizing that God has called us to, as it says in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, you have been at this mountain long enough. Move on. And so as we hear the sound of the shofar, uh, let us hear that sound. Let us confess our sins. Let us draw closer to God. Let it be our prayer. This one thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. May that be uh, our prayer, our cry, that meaning of the sound of the shofar uh, as we enter into these high holies. Well, there's a lot more to say, and we'll continue tomorrow morning, but for now, let's pray. Lord uh, God, may uh, we be people who hear the sound of the shofar. May, it, may we rise up, Lord, and may we move forward. May we confess our sins May we think introspectively, and uh, oh Lord, may we indeed uh, uh, draw closer to you, Lord. Uh, may we begin anew. May we reboot. May we start over, Lord. Open up our eyes. Help us to think clearly about our own lives and the lives of others. May we confess our sins. May we ask forgiveness and be forgiven of one another, Lord, during these uh, ten days of awe. Lord, may you be pleased with our sacrifice of praise and our sacrifice of uh, worship, Lord. Lord, we live in a very difficult world. We live in a scary world. We live in a scary place, Lord. Lord, thank you that we do not have to fear because we know, Lord, that you are at work 
and that you will be victorious and that you have called us to live godly and in word and deed be a light in the midst of darkness. And that is what, as soldiers, one might say, that is what we're called to do in this war. Yes, Lord, we are fighting a war, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and darkness, Lord. And so, God, may we repent. May we put on the armor of God and move forward, Lord. And by doing so, we know that that is what you've called us to do in this world. We pray in Messiah's name.